Please turn with me this morning to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John chapter 20. It was an early fall morning, late in the morning, and if my memory serves me correctly, it was my eighth grade year in school. A family friend by the name of Dave is a a gentleman who uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time with me in my growing up years uh, fishing and took me around town and uh, taught me a lot about photography. And on this day, we were to go hunting. Dave and I were to, uh, the two of us, uh, do some hunting on the Bone River uh, situated in southwest Washington. And as we got up and we made our way to uh, the spot that we were going to hunt at, we, we began at the, the top of a hill. And we were going to hike down a ravine. And the strategy was essentially this. Dave would go on the right side, and I would go on the left side, and I would go quietly, and Dave would go rather hastily. He would make all the noise he could, hooting and hollering, and try to scare any animals in my direction. When I got to the bottom of this ravine, my instructions were, wait for Dave. And so that's exactly what I did. I got to the bottom of the hill, or the ravine, and I waited, and waited, and waited. And then after roughly three or three and a half hours, remember this is in the fall, it was beginning to get dark, and as an eighth grader, I was beginning to get a little bit worried. I was beginning to get hungry, I didn't have any food with me, and I started to entertain notions like many of you would entertain. What happens if Dave never makes it to the bottom of the ravine? We are in the middle of nowhere. That we, we are miles and miles away from civilization or roads, and there are certainly not any Starbucks nearby. And I was beginning to get worried. What, what happens if I come face to face with a wild animal? What happens if I starve to death? What happens if I freeze to death? And so as nightfall began to uh, loom larger and fear began to rise in my soul, I did what I think most eighth grade boys would do. I just yelled out, Dave! And just yelled at the top of my lungs, Nothing. I didn't hear a thing. Well, the second thing I was trained to do in firearm safety is to fire a few distress shots. And so I fired my rifle three times and I waited. Nothing. My question is this. Have you ever been at the bottom of that ravine? Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you were so filled with fear or anxiety or loneliness or you name the emotion, you didn't know which way to turn? Have you ever been at your wit's end in the Christian life? Have you ever been just filled with with fear or anxiety or been so tired you just didn't know what to do next? This is exactly where we find the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in this story. They would soon become reacquainted with their Savior, the Lord Jesus, after a grueling three-day interval. It had been three days since the Lord Jesus had suffered and died on the cross and was buried in that tomb. 
And soon they would learn more about his heart for them as well as his heart for the world. I want to have you look with me at this passage in John chapter 20 and invite you to stand as we read the passage together, beginning in verse 19. John chapter 20, verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Will you pray with me? Our Father, uh, I want to thank you for uh, this passage before us, the deep meaning that resides in your word, and the way that uh, I trust you will encourage your people today. God, I pray for Christians, that especially Christians who are weak or filled with fear or filled with uncertainty or filled with doubt, that today would be a day where they would be filled with encouragement that they would be bolstered by the power of your spirit through the great instrument of your word, the word of God. God, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not have a relationship with you through your son, the Lord Jesus, that perhaps today would be the day of salvation. Perhaps today would be the day when you would quicken someone's heart and you would open their eyes and soften their heart so that they would see uh, the truth of the gospel for the very first time. We ask, God, that for all of us, our hearts would be soft and pliable, that we would receive your word, and that you, once again, would would do a marvelous work here in this place. It's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Heart of Ascending Savior. And we will see Jesus Christ ministering to his disciples in this story. And in the process of seeing how he ministers to them and seeing what his heart is for them, we will see in turn that he has the same heart for you and for me. I want you to see four aspects of Jesus' ministry that emerge in this very interesting story. The first is found in verse 19. I want you to see first that Jesus consoles his disciples. Jesus consoles his disciples. Why does he console them? Well, we will see that these disciples have what I might call a trembling faith. Verse 19 On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, that's significant, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. When you begin to put together the pieces and contextualize the events that led ultimately to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, you begin to realize, you begin to realize the enormous amount of stress and duress that the disciples were under. Think about it like this. Only days before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, the the minds of the disciples were literally soaked in Jesus' teaching. 
You might make the case for the, the past few years that the disciples' minds have been soaked in Jesus' teaching. But as you recall, and we spent a lot of time in the Gospel of John, especially from John 15 onward. From John 15 onward, we see that, that Jesus is filling the minds of his disciples with glorious teaching and theology. This is doctrinal teaching. This is, this is upper-tier teaching. This is teaching that's in the deep end of the pool. Especially when we move to John chapter 16, and he, he begins to share with them the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But it begins in John 16 when Jesus tells them that persecution is on the horizon. Would you look at it with me? John chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, he says to them, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. Imagine being one of the disciples. And Jesus said, this is the reason I'm teaching this to you, so you don't fall away. If you're like me, I'd sit up in my chair to to prevent me from falling away. Jesus, what is this? Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And so he helps them to understand persecution is just around the corner. Jesus, moreover, taught them about, as I mentioned, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Look in John chapter 16, verse 7. He says this, He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Again, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Jesus, Patty, Jesus looks you in the eyes and he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. I mean, wouldn't you say to yourself, excuse me? Wait a minute. Uh, Say again, Jesus. It is to your advantage that I go away for If I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, will not come to you, the Holy Spirit. And when I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus taught them. That he would soon be going away, that he would be he would be making his way to the Father. Look at John sixteen twenty eight. I came from the Father, that much they had figured out, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to my Father. Jesus moreover taught them that in the coming days there would be a massive turnaround in their perspectives. Once again, imagine sitting in the shoes of the disciples. And Jesus says something like this in verse 20 of chapter 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You say, wait a minute, I will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. There must have been a lot of heads that were scratching during these teaching times with the Lord Jesus Christ. But needless to say, their minds were soaked in Jesus' teachings. But their minds were not only soaked in this great doctrinal reality, their hearts were also very, very heavy. Their hearts were overwhelmed with sadness as they witnessed the betrayal 
and the arrest of their friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. And surely their hearts were confused and perhaps even angered when they heard, when they got news that that Peter had betrayed Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. I think the way I'm wired, I would have said something like this to Peter. Peter, are you crazy? They must have been filled with frustration and even anger. And their hearts broke as Jesus was flogged, as he was beaten, as he was mocked, as he was literally spit upon. And ultimately as he was crucified and buried in that tomb. And the grief must have been absolutely unbearable. It must have been horrible. Because not only was their friend dead, their Savior was dead. And even more than that, this was the one who was going to bring in the Messianic kingdom. Jesus was their deliverer, and now he was dead. And so on Sunday morning, after Mary Magdalene discovered the empty tomb, you remember that she tells John and Peter... And they go and they see the empty tomb for their own eyes. And then Jesus, as we learned last week, he appears to Mary Magdalene, who at that point he tells her, go and tell the disciples about this glorious resurrection. And of course, she did just that. And so the disciples, you can see, are experiencing this wide range of emotions, especially after Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. But here's the point, I believe, of verse 20, or verse 19, if you go back to John 20. Their chief fear, their chief anxiety is this, it's a fear of man. Verse 19 says very plainly that they were in the locked residence. They were in a locked house. Why? For fear of the Jews. And I imagine the disciples were saying things like this. What will they do with us? Will they persecute us? The smart ones, the ones who had paid attention to Jesus, remember back to John 16, which was only about three days prior, four days prior. Right? When Jesus said, they will persecute you. And so the disciples must have been sitting around the fire in this this residence asking, will they persecute us? Will they arrest us? Will they crucify us like the Lord Jesus Christ? And so we find them now cowering in fear, hidden away in this locked house. Literally paralyzed with fear. They killed Jesus, the disciples reason. Surely they will come for us next. They know that we are his disciples. And so they hole away in this locked house. No one will break through this door. No one is going to get into this house. We're, we're so afraid of what might happen. Lock the doors. No one's going to get in here except Jesus. Except Jesus. And we have to read between the lines here because what happens in verse 19 is John simply says, Jesus came and stood among them. Can you use your imagination? Jesus came and stood among them. That is, the glorified, resurrected body of Jesus clearly penetrate the walls of this house. He did not knock. He certainly didn't ring the doorbell. Jesus simply appears and he stands before the disciples. Once again, put yourself in their position. 
a wide range of emotions. And Peter says to John, look, there's Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Peace be with you. And Jesus' words are certainly designed to console the disciples. But his words are loaded, I would argue. When Jesus says peace to you, he does more than merely give the the disciples a pep talk. He does more than merely cheer them up. Rather, he makes a statement as the, the risen Christ with a resurrected body that have massive theological implications and personal implications for them and for you and I as well. We would all agree that Jesus' very presence, his mere presence should have encouraged the disciples. It should have calmed their fears. All their fears should have melted away when they saw the risen Jesus in their presence. But his presence and his words, peace to you, certainly accomplish more than just that. He reminds them by his very presence that he is sovereign over the universe. That he is sovereign over creation. That he is sovereign over all of his enemies. That he is sovereign over the elements. Indeed, Jesus Christ is sovereign over death itself. And you don't see it, but I imagine the disciples with their mouths wide open. This is something they did not anticipate. This is not something they did not expect, nor did Mary Magdalene, as we learned last week. And so Jesus not only granted peace to the disciples, and catch this, he was their peace. He not only offered peace to the disciples, he was their peace. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Jason read just a moment ago in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the message of the gospel is a message of peace. Paul says that Jesus reconciled his people in his body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so the words, peace be with you. It's amazing. One sentence calms not only the fears of the disciples, but they are reminded in one sentence of their rich heritage in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says the same thing to you today. He says, Christ fellowship, peace be to you. I'm not sure what you're facing this week. I don't know what kind of obstacles that you're dealing with. I don't know what kind of fears have you by the throat or the kind of anxieties that are weighing you down or the kind of physical uh, things that are disabling you and discouraging you. But there's one thing I do know. I know that if you're a Christ follower, the word of God says that Jesus is your peace. He is here right now. He's here right now. Have you ever heard someone say, Lord Jesus, come, we welcome you into our presence? I always wondered why people did that. He's omnipresent. He is here. 
And He is your peace. He is here to wash away your fears. And I went back and forth as I studied. I originally wrote on my notes, He is here to wash away your sins. And I said, no, that's not right. He already washed away your sins. And I erased it. And then I went back and I finally came to the conclusion that, yes, it's true. He washed away your sins. He continually washes away your sins as First John chapter 1 very clearly teaches us. And so Jesus is not done with the disciples in this narrative. Their faith still needs to be strengthened as it is not entirely clear that they are 100% certain that this is really Jesus. In fact, they are totally uncertain as to whether or not it is Jesus. And so what does he do? Jesus moves from consoling the disciples to convincing the disciples. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. This is what you might refer to as empirical evidence. This is evidence that you can see. This is evidence that you can touch. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. But before they are convinced, you you have to admit, we have to admit together that their faith is a troubled faith. It's a troubled faith. If you would turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 24, we get a, a, a little side glimpse at this same story through the eyes of Dr. Luke. And he, he says some things that we don't discover in the Gospel of John, and they are helpful. And they help us to see the level of fear and the troubled faith that is plaguing the disciples. Look at John chapter, or Luke rather, Luke chapter uh, 24, verse 36. Same story. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. And notice what happens. They were startled and frightened. Now before you move forward, let me explain to you that the word startled comes from a Greek word that means to be absolutely terrified. The word frightened means to be very frightened, to be very much afraid. And the young people, here's the way we ought to translate it. The disciples were totally freaked out. That's the translation of the Greek. They were totally freaked out. Verse 38, and Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? The word troubled is a word that that means to be thrown into confusion. It's a word that could be translated to be thrown into a riot. Jesus says, why are you so troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart. You see, whenever we doubt, and we will learn more of this next week, the famous passage about doubting Thomas, whenever we doubt, let me ask, would you raise your hand if you ever doubt Jesus? What about those of you that aren't raising your hands? We all doubt Jesus. We all doubt his promises. And when we doubt, we essentially give God a vote of no confidence. We give God a vote of no confidence. And so Jesus says, Why the troubled? Why is your heart troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And so Jesus challenged their troubled faith by revealing the evidence of his resurrection. We've already seen that in John chapter 20. He showed them the wounds in his hands. He showed them the wound in his side. But we learn more in Luke chapter 24. Look at verse 39. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you have. 
And he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. If you go back to verse 37, you remember, they were startled and frightened. Why? Because they thought that Jesus was a spirit. You could say this, they thought that he was some kind of of a ghost. And so when Jesus says, here, look at the wounds in my hands, look at the wounds in my side, you can touch me if you want. And I can can just imagine, I can just imagine the the disciples going up and, I mean, I mean, this would be me, you know, barely, I'd be, I'd be wigged out. Would you be wigged out? Oh. And so they have this chance, they have this chance to see the empirical evidence. They see the wound in his side, they see the wounds in his hands, and there are some important implications of this empirical evidence. Very important implications. And there are three of them. The first is, they realize that the person who stood before them was not a spirit, he was not a ghost, the person who stood before them was actually Jesus Christ. Second, they realize that his body is a real body. A real body. Would you turn with me to the near the end of the New Testament to 1 John? To 1 John. And there's some crucial, crucial writing that we see unfold in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Let me read it and briefly explain. In 1 John 1, 1 to 3, the Apostle John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest as we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us, to which we have, note, seen and heard we proclaim also to you. It's interesting. The word touched, if you go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, is the same identical word that Dr. Luke utilizes in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. That is to say, his body was and is a real body. Jesus is not a spirit. Jesus is not a phantom. Even now, Jesus has a real human body, albeit a glorified, resurrected body. And then finally, we realize, and the disciples realize, that it was not just the spirit of Christ who had been raised from the dead. You must understand that many theological liberals say it was the spirit of Christ that was raised from the dead. Actually, it is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that was raised from the dead. And the disciples experience it. They see it. They witness it. And all these things move the disciples from a troubled faith to a triumphant faith. All it takes to move the disciples from a troubled faith to a triumphant faith is to see the nail-scarred hands and to see the wound in his side. And notice in verse 20 what happens when they finally get it through their thick skulls. And by the way, I think we would have all been in the same place. We would have all had thick skulls. The disciples are filled with joy as they witness the resurrected Christ. It's interesting, you don't need to go back there, but in our Luke 24 passage, Luke tells us that Jesus went one step further, which is not reported in John 20. He asked for something to eat. 
which helps to verify their faith. I don't know about you, but if I saw a grown man eating a piece of fish, fish and chips, let's say for fun, I would say to myself, yep, he's a man. It's not a spirit. It's not a ghost. It's not a phantom. Yep, this is the real deal. And so they no doubt recalled the words of Jesus who predicted and also promised these events would happen after the crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection. Go back, if you would, to John 16. And now it will begin to all make sense. In John chapter 16, verse 20, before the crucifixion of Jesus, he says to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. I will be so, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to what? Joy. Would you put your place in the disciples' shoes once again? There we are, gathered around. We see Jesus eating, and I imagine them talking back and forth, and I see myself sitting there going, It happened. He promised that we would experience grief and our grief would be turned to joy. I'm experiencing that right now. And our faith, I would argue, is identical to the faith of the disciples, is it not? Our faith is so fragile. Sometimes it needs convincing. And that is why Jesus graciously showed the wounds in his hands and in his side. Are you blown away by the graciousness of Jesus? If you were Jesus, wouldn't you say, are you kidding me? Guys. But no, Jesus shows only grace. He shows only mercy. I would ask, how is your troubled faith this morning? And what will it take? What will it take in your life to move from a troubled faith to a triumphant faith like the disciples experience? Because one day we too will see, we will literally see the the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. We will see the wound in his side. Because as we know, those things don't go away. The The book of Revelation says they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Two verses later in Revelation 5:12 we read worthy is the <coughs> excuse me worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so Jesus we see consoling the troubled faith of the disciples. We see him convincing them and helping them move from a troubled faith to a triumphant faith that leads to great rejoicing. But there's something additional that happens. In verse 21, we see that Jesus commissions the disciples. He commissions the disciples. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. It's what I like to refer to as a task-oriented faith. This is not a works-oriented faith. This is a faith that does work. You see, As we talked about in Veritas this morning, when we receive grace, it is grace that fuels the work we do in the Christian life. Therefore, God gets all the glory. And so once again, Jesus says to his disciples, peace be with you. And I believe in verse 21, we come face to face 
with the very heart of God. That is to say that He is a sending Savior. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And there's an important progression of thought that we need to look at briefly. The Father sent the Son. The Father has, Jesus said, sent me. He has sent me. It's a word that means to dispatch. It's a word that means literally to send out. And so in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, here's what Jesus says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Listen, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. In Luke 4.43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. Would you think about this for a moment with me? The reason Jesus is sent to is to release the captives, to set them free. First John chapter 3 says he came to destroy the works of the devil. Yet, what are some churches doing in our culture? Some churches are more concerned about having the greatest, latest smoke machine and light show than preaching the gospel. What has happened? What is happening in our culture is we need to be about the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, we are to proclaim good news to the captives. And then the Son, you see, sends the disciples to partner with Him in fulfilling His mission. You see, Jesus' mission then becomes our mission as we partner together with Him. We join Jesus in proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And here is what some of you are thinking right now. I'm not reading your minds, but I've talked to enough people to know this is what you're thinking. It goes something like this. Preacher, I'm not a preacher. Right? Or, Pastor, I'm not a public speaker. You don't understand. And so, I understand that. We understand that together. And so, in light of some of those objections, in light of some of those fears, in light of some of those insecurities, I think we would also all admit... We are all to participate in the Great Commission. Jesus commissioned the disciples and Jesus commissions every man, woman, boy, and girl. And so what does it look like? Two things. First, let me encourage you to point people to the Savior. When I say point people to the Savior, that doesn't mean you have to stand behind a wooden pulpit. That means point the people to the Savior by reminding your friends and family members of His glory which is revealed in creation. Remind them of His majesty, which is revealed in His holy word. Remind them of His sovereignty, which is revealed in daily circumstances. Remind them of His love, which is unveiled on the cross of Christ. But not only point people to the Savior, proclaim the good news about the Savior. Do it in your neighborhoods. Do it in your schools. Proclaim the gospel to your friends. Proclaim the gospel in your place of employment. I have to confess to you that a few days ago, I was working on this message at the Barclay Starbucks. And I I was working away and I was studying and I was just, just delighting in this text. I had just taken a big gulp of my flat white. And an Asian lady came up. And she said with a, a, a very strong accent, excuse me, may I have you help me with something? And I said, certainly. 
and she showed me her phone. And it didn't make much sense at first, but it was obvious that she was uh, taking some kind of a survey or a test. It turned out it had to do with the State Department. And looking back, I think she was applying for citizenship. And there was, it was like a trick question. And it actually was, I, I didn't know the answer either. But I tried to work her through it. And, and she and I visited for a few minutes and I tried to help her as best I could. And I said, may I ask where you're from? And she said, oh, I'm from Shanghai. And I said, oh, Shanghai, that is a beautiful city. I, I'd love to go to Shanghai. Oh, you should go to Shanghai sometime. She said, oh, I have to ask, you know Tiananmen Square? I said, yeah, I know Tiananmen Square. She said, at Tiananmen, she says, I was there and I fled to America after Tiananmen Square. And the hair in my arms, as the hair in my arms is standing up right now, was standing up there at Starbucks. And I was, I was so blown away by the history and what this woman must have gone through to find freedom in America. I said my goodbyes. She said, thank you so much. You've been very helpful. And it probably took me half an hour to realize, why didn't I ask this woman, may I ask you a question? What do you think she would have said? Certainly. I just helped her. I could have asked her. Do you know the God of the universe? Simple. And I blew it. I blew it. And it was a good reminder to me that we need to be about spreading the kingdom of God. The read-it selection for the month of May will be a book that will be released uh, this Tuesday. I received an advanced copy, a book by Jared Wilson called The Imperfect Disciple. The subtitle is wonderful. It's Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together. Maybe that's why I like it. And here's what Jared Wilson says. And I hope it speaks to you as it, speak to me, it spoke to me. He said, The two great failures of the evangelical church today are failures of the highest magnitude. Namely, neglecting to proclaim the gospel and refusing to. To embody it. I would like to think in that exchange with my friend at Starbucks that I embodied the gospel by showing kindness and mercy and being friendly and expressing my interest in this woman and asking where she was from and to share some of her life experiences. And so embodying the gospel wasn't my problem. I simply neglected to proclaim it. And so my challenge to you and my challenge to me is that we would be a people who the first thing on our mind would be to proclaim the gospel, to point people to the Savior. Now, there's one final point in this story that I want you to see. And I want you to remember that whenever Jesus commissions someone, whenever Jesus commissioned his disciples and whenever he commissions you and I, he never leaves us to our own devices. And so Jesus challenges the disciples in verses 22 and 23, and it leads to a transformed faith. Verse 22, when he had said this, that is, when he had commissioned them, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here we see the disciples' faith is transformed where Jesus utters this command. To receive the Holy Spirit. The word receive means to take hold of. Means to grab a hold of it. And this challenge should, should have come as no surprise to the disciples. Because Jesus, as we saw in John 16, 
had already told them that the Spirit would come upon them at a later date. Once again, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Of course, as you know, the Spirit would come in great power at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, roughly 40 days after this exchange with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember those marvelous words in Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And so it is in this context, the promise of the Spirit must have been a huge boost. It must have been a huge encouragement for the disciples. These disciples, like you and me, who battle with fear and anxiety and doubt, we are the ones who can't get our acts together. It must have been encouraging for these men who struggled with a trembling faith and a troubled faith. Soon the disciples would experience the the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit who would indwell them permanently and empower them for ministry and grant them spiritual gifts to accomplish great things to the glory of God. This is the heart of ascending Savior. The Spirit that Jesus promised was unleashed on the, on the church in the book of Acts. And Peter joyfully says in Acts 2.33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. As we close, I want to share a life lesson that emerges in this story. And that is, That Jesus knows exactly what you need. He knew exactly what the disciples needed. He knew all about their their fear-soaked faith. And what did he do? He met them precisely at their point of need. He consoled them. He convinced them. Jesus Christ commissioned them. And then he challenged them. And he said, as you go into all the world and preach the gospel... Receive the Spirit. And I believe that this is one of the main reasons that we must be careful to distinguish between law and gospel. The law says, you blew it. You can never measure up. The gospel says, Christ achieved everything for you. In 1518, Martin Luther Less than a year after he hung the 95 Theses on the castle door at Wittenberg. He wrote this in his little book, The Heidelberg Disputation. He said, the law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is done. Jesus, Jesus Christ does the same for us today. He knows all of our needs. He knows how our faith needs to be readjusted to maximize our effectiveness in the kingdom of God. Yet so many of us stop short and become ineffective servants in God's kingdom. And our reasoning is something like this. My faith is too weak to make a difference. I don't know enough about the Bible. 
I don't have enough experience. I, I, I. It's very interesting because this sermon was already complete when on Thursday afternoon, this ridiculous book came in the mail and it told me, Steele, get your act together. If you find yourself at the bottom of the ravine, filled with fear and anxiety, Jesus has a message for you today. And the message is simply this. If your faith is weak, if you're discouraged, if you are a struggling pilgrim in the Christian race, then you are a perfect candidate for grace. You are the one who needs to sign on the dotted line to either begin the Christian race or commit yourself to continuing the Christian race. Because Jesus finds great delight This is one of the most counterintuitives you'll ever see in the scripture. That Jesus finds great delight in sending redeemed sinners into the world to impact the nations for his glory. Can I say that in a way that junior hires and high school students would relate to? Jesus loves to use losers like us. He loves to use people who are all screwed up and marginalized and struggling. And he loves to launch us into the future. And so some of you in the days ahead will become missionaries, either here in Whatcom County or in a country we've never heard of before. Others of you will stay here and you will just use your gifts to the glory of God to say, yeah, pastor, I'm so messed up. Or as my wife puts it, you've got issues. (laughs) If you have issues, then God has a plan for you. If you feel marginalized, God wants to use you. And as you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ grants you authority, as we read in verse 23. He grants you authority to declare that those who genuinely believe in Jesus and repent of their sins will have all their sins forgiven by God. Some of you have heard me share the story about my best friend growing up. It's the first time I remember sharing the gospel in its entirety. I was in the fifth grade. And this, is a, this was a, a boy that was, I mean, we, we shook hands and said, we, we are best buddies. And we still are. We've kind of lost contact over the years. But I told my buddy, I shared with him the gospel, and I said, I want you to think about it come back tomorrow because if you come back and say no you're going to hell (laughs) it was a very blunt presentation and my friend came back and he said no i don't i don't think that's for me over the last month just out of the blue i've received text messages from my friend asking questions and wanting to get together and nothing could make me happier because it's been it's been over 40 years ago I shared the gospel with my buddy. But you remember St. Augustine, who was a, a totally ungodly young man. And his mother, Monica, committed to praying for him. And she prayed every day. She got on her knees and she prayed for her son. And Augustine went from being one of the chief of sinners to one of the most influential Christian men to ever live in this world. And so we refuse to give up. And so God gives us authority. Jesus gives us authority to declare the gospel. On the other hand, we are given authority to warn those who reject Jesus Christ. We warn them that they will perish in their sins if they turn away from the gospel. Jesus Christ 
finds great delight in sending messed up people like us, redeemed sinners like us into the world to impact the nations for his purposes. We join together. We rally together. Let's come together as a church family and do what we need to do in this community to reach the nations for the gospel. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the the richness and the, the depth of your word. I thank you for the hope of your word. I thank you for the story that reveals a group of men who are just like us, men who struggle with insecurity and doubt and fear and loneliness and uncertainty. These guys were marginalized. These guys are found, found themselves compromising and failing to believe the promises of God. But I thank you for this story, Lord Jesus, that you, you showed so much mercy, so much compassion. You were so tender with them as you were tender and merciful and compassionate with us. And so, God, I pray a special prayer for the weak, for the lonely, for the marginalized, for the person who is struggling with faith. May they, may they be uh, emboldened today. May they be encouraged. May they realize that you have a purpose for them. May you launch them out. May new ministries begin. May a new emphasis begin in our community. May you use Christ Fellowship to reach not only the community here, but to reach the nations for the glory of God. We thank you that you give us the, not only the authority, but you give us the power as the Holy Spirit resides within our hearts. And we ask that you would do great things in the days ahead so that, so that Jesus would be glorified in all the earth. In his name we pray. Amen.